is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. And my goodness, if you're a homeschooler, if you've been to college but never got a real good education on this stuff, well, no matter where you are in your learning life, these are the best in breed. And on this day in history in 1927, an American legend passed away who you've definitely heard of, but likely don't truly know his story. Born in the summer of his 27th year Coming home to a place he'd never been before He left yesterday behind him You might say he was born again You might say he found the key for every door You've probably tasted their beer Coors 105 years of only pure Rocky Mountain spring water. Make it yours. Make it Coors. For some of you, it's more than a taste. It's a tradition. And for others of you, it's a daily tradition. After an honest day's work. When a day's work was mining for gold under the frozen ground for 12 straight hours, happy hour had a whole new meaning. Yet few have thought about the name and where it came from. How it was almost spelled Coors with a K. A beer that's still known as the Banquet Beer. A German name that got Americanized and changed to a C. A German name for a German man. Adolf Coors. Who became an American man. An American legend. This is his story. Rocking down to On February 4, 1847, Adolf Kors was born into a family that was stable, until it wasn't. Tuberculosis took his mother from him when he was 14, and then came for father when he was 15. He was swiftly and suddenly an orphan. Perhaps providentially, there was a brewery right across the street from him, a brewery that would teach the young orphan a trade that he could use, that we would use, for the rest of his life. Once again, things were getting stable, until they weren't. The King of Prussia decided he wanted to become Emperor of United Germany, and Prussian men were forced to make a choice. Fight the King's war, or leave the country. Adolf left the country, and he wasn't alone. An astounding 500,000 Germans emigrated to the United States between 1866 and 1870. With no money to his name, and almost no English in his vocabulary, the 21-year-old Adolf hopped onto a ship heading for Baltimore as an undocumented stowaway. Ashamed for not having paid his way, he took any job he could get in Baltimore to take care of the bill working as a laborer, in a brewery, as a fireman, a bricklayer, and a stonecutter. 
When he saved enough to venture westward, he did, landing at a brewery in a Chicago suburb. And when he saved even more, he ventured westward even more. His greatest luggage that he carried was his greatest vision, opening a brewery that he could call his own. Phil Anschutz's book, Out Where the West Begins, tells us why he decided to go westward, and specifically where. Coors heard talk of a booming new western city where Germans were the single largest foreign-born group, and he knew that where there were Germans, there would be brewing opportunities. Following his dream, in 1872, Coors climbed aboard the three-year-old transcontinental railroad headed for Denver to settle there, if you could call it settling. He trekked across prairies, through wilderness, and into the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, all in search of superior water to brew a superior beer. Coors would find his golden supply in Golden, Colorado, where springs near Clear Creek River bubbled up with cold, crisp water from the snow-capped Rocky Mountains. And a golden location it was. The population of the Colorado Territory was growing, and fast. Anschutz writes, he learned that Clear Creek had been the mother load of the Colorado Gold Rush, attracting some 100,000 fortune seekers in one of the greatest mass migrations in U.S. history. Coors did not seek the heavy yellow metal in Clear Creek. He figured its water could be transformed into liquid gold. To top it off, his golden town of Golden was 15 miles away from Denver, a young city, but one with seven breweries. In Golden, he would be it. Only three months after acquiring his golden property, he was out in the town, carting around and selling his very first batch of beer. All 31 barrels of it. And customers quickly began to pour into town, just to get his beer. Anschutz notes how many arrived on the Colorado Central Railroad, which built a spur line across Clear Creek to the brewery. Today, the Burlington Southern Santa Fe still operates that beer line. A mere 10 years later, he won a national brewing competition at the big event, the biggest event of the era, the World's Fair in Chicago. Once again, things were getting stable, until they weren't. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories. And more on this remarkable American story, our This Day in History segment brought to you by Hillsdale College. More after this.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our This Day in History series, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And today we're celebrating the life of Adolph Coors, the founder of Coors Brewing, who died on this day in history in 1927. And we love to tell you business stories because the history of this country, well, a lot of it had to do not just with the politicians and the battles, but about the entrepreneurs and the innovators who made America great. When we left off, Adolph had found his water supply for brewing his beer in Golden, Colorado. But like so much of his story, things were getting stable until they weren't. His golden water was turning into golden disaster on what was supposed to be a golden day. Memorial Day. The year was 1894, and the flash flood came rushing down Clear Creek Canyon and into the town. Townspeople fled, dead sheep, flattened trees, and ruined buildings left behind. Left behind with the one man who wouldn't leave, Adolph Kors. He was determined to destroy the flood, or it would destroy him. The book Colorado Vanguards paints the scene. Adolph Kors stood ground between the raging waters of Clear Creek and his brewery. Determined not to leave, Kors watched as the water sheared off an expensive new addition to his business. The man-made ice ponds where his workers cut ice blocks in winter went under, and the waters kept rising, inch by inch, up the slope. What happened next was described in Golden's newspaper, the Colorado Transcript. When Mr. Coors found the raging torrent encroaching on his grounds, with his accustomed energy, he purchased several lots on the opposite side of the creek and put an army of men to work tearing down the houses on them and cutting away the ground in an endeavor to turn the channel away from his premises. This desperate plan, quickly acted on, worked. Even though his losses amounted to $10,000, the brewery survived, and so did Adolph Kors. Once again, things were getting stable, until they weren't. Enter the Prohibition Movement. In 1907, the nearby Boulder, Colorado, voted to go dry. In 1908, Loveland was next. Golden knew better, and in 1909, voted to stay wet. But in 1916, they were told their vote didn't matter. Colorado passed a statewide ban on alcohol. Four years later, the nationwide ban took effect. The Coors Brewery was forced to dump 17,391 gallons of beer into Clear Creek. Coors family lore says that from then on, Adolph Coors never tasted beer again. With his beer not surviving, how would his company? The only way it could start all over again and invent new companies, invent new products. Adolph and his sons founded a porcelain company which fashioned cooking utensils and scientific items. Adolph Jr. even invented a strong chemical porcelain that no one else supplied. 
Their porcelain was later used by the U.S. government for insulators at the uranium enrichment plant, which provided the fuel for the Hiroshima atom bomb. The company still exists to this day, now called Coors Tech, and employs 5,900 people. A malted milk also came to be, and so would a non-alcoholic beer called Mana. Although we haven't found any explanation as to why they called the near-beer manna, it may very well have biblical origins. From the story of God providing the Israelites food called manna, so they could survive their travels in the barren desert. Americans were now in the barren desert of prohibition, and needed something to survive it. Adolf would provide it with manna, although it reportedly disgusted him thoroughly to produce an inferior product. A more difficult decision was how to make do with more limited resources. The Kors family cut all of their own salaries, but Adolf was also forced to ask employees to take pay cuts. The employee union was having none of it, refusing to discuss it, and so they went on strike. Looking back on all that they had gone through, Adolf Jr. told his father, nobody should ever tell this family how to run its own business. Adolf Sr. agreed and fired the striking employees. If he didn't make such tough, difficult decisions, Coors might not have survived prohibition. Most brewers didn't. There were 1,568 breweries at the start of prohibition, and only 750 reopened when it was repealed on December 5, 1933. Adolf wouldn't see this day, but his company would. And it was because of his stoic approach towards life, an approach described by grandson William Kistler Coors in Anschutz's book. My grandfather never thought backward, only forward. He didn't talk about the past, which had its tragedies. He focused on making the best beer in America. Actor Paul Newman believed Coors did, and so he must have. My boy says he can eat 50 eggs, he can eat 50 eggs. Newman called it the best American beer bar none. He was so strident about Coors that he required it on ice at all of his movie sets and refused to be seen drinking anything but Coors beer. All the way up until 1981, you couldn't get Coors east of the Mississippi, making it for many a mystical treasure that had to be traveled for. Wait a minute. Why do you want that beer so bad? Because he's thirsty, dummy. See, I got a boy running tomorrow in the Southern Classic, and uh, when he wins, I want to celebrate in style. How much style? Well, I got a few friends and me, uh, 400 cases. And smuggled for the very basis of the movie Smokey and the Bandit. The problem is that Coors beer, you take that east of Texas, and that's, uh, that's bootlegging. You know, I believe you're just a little bit scared. That's great psychology. Why don't you just say something bad about my mother? Your mama... President Eisenhower joined in on this treasure hunt, requesting that his supply of cores be brought to the White House on board an Air Force plane. And President Ford packed cores in his luggage on return trips to Washington from his ski vacations in Colorado. Today it is the second largest beer company in America, the fifth largest in the world, 
and remains the largest single-site brewery in the world, producing more than 17 million barrels each and every year. And it all started with a man whose name adorns the beer, Adolf Coors. This day in history. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Great job on that, guys. That's just some great storytelling about a great American life. And by the way, we're going to be covering a few more of those lives in Phil, Phil Anschutz's book, Out Where the West Begins. Harrison Gray Otis's story and Cyrus McCormick. And you'll love both of them. They're terrific. I want to close with just a short dramatic reading about this man's character right out of Mr. Anschutz's book. Coors ran his family as well as his brewery with teutonic firmness. Promptly at 625 every evening, Adolph and Louisa arrived in the living room. Hands washed and hair combed, the six children marched in for inspection. They always had to be on time, recalled longtime housekeeper Alma Brushwiller. Mr. Coors Sr., was always looking at his pocket watch. At 6.30, he took Louise's arm and led the way to the dinner table. The six children followed in a straight line. Alma Brushwiller recalls, just like ducklings. After dinner, the old man would go out on the porch and exercise with a pair of dumbbells. Alma Brushwiller remembers Adolf Coors Sr. as a, quote, very German, very precise man about everything. He spoke with a German accent, he was very prim, neat, every hair in place. Even for his breakfast in the dining room, Nook, he would be all dressed up in a coat and tie. You could set your watch by that man. His life was the brewery. Even on Sundays, he would go walk through the plant, just checking on things. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories on this day in history. A great man's life celebrated. Adolf Coors. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And one of the things we love to talk about on the show while we're preparing for the show, well, almost all the time, is food. While we're eating, we're actually talking about where we're going to eat next. That's how bad it is here at Our American Stories. And this story is about sandwiches and the law and class action lawsuits. Here's Jesse. I like Eating sandwiches, eating sandwiches for lunch and dinner. Ah, yeah, sandwiches. Who doesn't love eating a sandwich? I'm probably eating one right now, and you wouldn't even know it. Sandwiches, like Mom used to make. Sanctuary from an insane world. 
The one place you can go to get away from the nightmarish current events, bad weather, <laughs> awful things happening in the news. Turn now to that scandal at Subway. You may have heard about this one. It turns out some of their famous footlong sandwiches have been coming in a bit short. Oh, God. I think size matters. To the courtroom, a new proposed class action lawsuit is now accusing Subway of deceptive advertising. Oh, no! no. God! If they're following the baking procedures, they should no, get the 12 God, inches please, out of the no, oven every single no. time. No! Uh, sandwiches, too. No! Is anything sacred? But joining us to give the details of this cold-cut case is Ted Frank. Thanks for having me. He's senior attorney with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Explain to us the details, if you wouldn't mind. The underlying story was there was this teenager in Australia who bought a sandwich. Uh, he bought a footlong, and he had the, the clever idea of, well, what happens if I measure it? And his particular footlong sandwich was 11 inches or so. Uh, and he took a picture of it, and he put it on Facebook, and it went viral. Sandwich. Uh, it went even more viral because whoever the social media manager was at the uh, Australian affiliates of Subway, uh, they didn't handle it very well. They said, oh, well, here we have the metric system, so when we say foot long, it's just a, just, just a puffery. It's not really a description of how long the sandwich is, and that, of course got people really angry. How angry did they get? Uh, there, there's now global worldwide controversy over how long Subway footlong sandwiches are. Uh, and, and, and Subway realizes that they've stepped in it. So they, 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 they come forward and they say, look, we want everybody to have a footlong sandwich if they've ordered a footlong sandwich and we're going to take all these additional steps uh, in terms of quality control and uh, inspections of our franchisees and make sure that if you if you if you've ordered a footlong sandwich you're getting a footlong sandwich and if you get a piece of bread that's not a footlong uh tell the tell the manager and they'll they'll give you a new sandwich uh so subway you know the the, the market works jeez we hardly made a dent to that 10-foot hoagie oh give it a good hope subway had whatever problem it had uh, people got upset, and, and Subway responded to the market pressure and said, "You you want your 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 sandwiches to be a foot long? We're we're going to make sure that they're a foot long." You've been eating that thing for a week. I think the mayonnaise is starting to turn. Two more feet, and I can fit it in the fridge. But our story can't just end here, can it? Everybody's happy, right? Not so fast. By this time, the lawyers had come in. Uh, and without doing any real investigation other than seeing the news stories, they, they grabbed a plaintiff and they said, we're bringing a class action on behalf of everybody in America who uh, did not have a footlong sandwich. And they presumably thought that they were going to get rich off of this. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'd like to be alone with the sandwich for a moment. They hadn't really investigated whether uh, the class members, their clients, actually had any injury. And it, it turns out that, that Subway distributes lumps of dough uh, to its franchisees. And, and the lumps of dough are of uniform size, and the franchisees are supposed to stretch them out and bake them. And, and sometimes they're careful about baking them, and they're, 11, and, and they're 12 and a half inches, and sometimes they're less careful, and, and they don't rise all the way, and then it's 11 and a half inches. But it's the same amount of bread. Uh, nobody's getting shortchanged. It's just the shape of the bread that's different. <laughs> that's what she said. 
The lawyers still wanted their money. But there was just one little problem. Nobody really had an injury. Uh, and the, even the lawyers recognized, wow, this, this suit isn't getting anywhere. Uh, but they still wanted to get paid. So they agreed to a settlement. And the settlement was Subway agrees to do what they've already announced that they're going to do, which is to have a quality control program to make sure all the bread is a foot long. And, and the lawyers will get a half million dollars for uh, making Subway agree to what they've already agreed to do. Uh, and we're going to call that a class action settlement. So let's just recap for a second here. Someone complains to Subway that their $5 foot long is in fact a little short at 11.5 inches. Subway, being the upstanding sandwich slingers that they are, correct the issue from the top down with no questions asked. Then some lawyer caught wind of the situation and turned it into a good old-fashioned shakedown in the form of a class action lawsuit to the tune of $500,000. So what did the Competitive Enterprise Institute do about it? We came in and we objected. Uh, and at the district court level in, in the Western District of Wisconsin, uh, the, the federal judge there, still sort of rubber-stamped the settlement, rubber-stamped the uh, giant attorney fee, and, and said, well, you know, the, the case wasn't that strong, so it's okay that there's just this injunction that doesn't really do anything, and it's okay that the lawyers are getting paid because they worked really hard. Uh, and we said, well, but you settled the class action. You, you were supposed to be representing consumers, but you haven't done anything for your clients, and that's not right. And so we took that up on appeal to uh, the federal Seventh Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. And uh, we got a good panel uh, led by Judge Diane Sykes. And, and she immediately recognized what we were arguing, that uh, we had these attorneys who were bringing this bogus lawsuit that couldn't possibly accomplish anything for consumers, but were hoping to get paid. And she correctly recognized this as a scam and, and, and uh, ordered the settlement thrown out and, uh, and, and suggested very strongly that the entire case should be thrown out and that the lawyers shouldn't be allowed to represent a class like this. And that's indeed what happened on remand. So the trial lawyers get all the money, the consumer doesn't get any of it, and the consumer has to pay for the trial costs. Right, and, and it's a double hit, actually, because if the lawyers know that they don't actually have to win anything for consumers to get paid, uh, they're going to bring more bad lawsuits. They're, they're, they're not going to... So consumers are... It's actually a triple hit because you have these additional bad lawsuits that just cost consumers more money because they're raising costs to anybody. It's pure social cost. It's pure rent-seeking. Uh, you have consumers not getting anything. And then when consumers actually are injured... And there, there are legitimate class actions to be brought. The, the lawyers are still going to be focusing on the cases, on, on the crummy, uh, easy-to-settle quick cases, uh, rather than on the, on the legitimate cases. So get, getting a, a court to rule, as the Seventh Circuit did on this one, is, I think, great for consumers. Uh, it, it forces lawyers to focus on the cases where they can actually win things for consumers. And... It avoids these uh, costs of, of just meritless lawsuits. Ted Frank, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Senior attorney with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And now, I guess I'll have pizza for lunch. And great job on that, Jesse. And we bring you these stories, not because they're silly, but because in the end, they cost the American people a whole lot of money. And again, there are good lawsuits 
And boy, there are some really bad ones. And the bad ones, well, they can crowd out the good ones. And thanks to Ted Frank for the work he's doing at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, senior attorney there, and again, fighting for consumers in the end. These costs get passed along to us. This is Lee Habib, Subway's story, and that's one of our favorites here, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, we celebrate the youngest American to earn the Medal of Honor since the Civil War. He died on this day in history in 2008. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This is the story of a boy named Jacqueline. Jacqueline Harold Lucas, who always went by Jack, was born in a little town in North Carolina whose population could not fill one-tenth of the modern Dean Dome for a Tar Heels basketball game. And growing up, Jack was a handful. My father died when I was 11 years old, and I uh, became kind of a tough kid after that to handle. My mother couldn't handle me, sent me off military school. He excelled at the Edwards Military Institute, He was a cadet captain, led the football team, and enjoyed pretty much anything involving a ball, a pair of boxing gloves, a horse, or a gun. But then came December 7, 1941. Word of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor reached Young Jack in the dining hall. That day, uh... Cold chill came over me, and I knew, and I was became obsessed from that day one that I wanted to kill Japanese. They uh, hurt my country, and I sought every way I could to get into the Marine Corps. I was young, but I knew that I could fight. To join the Marine Corps, a man had to be 18 or 17 if a parent signed off on it. But Jack, well, Jack was just 13. So he spent the rest of eighth grade trying to talk his mother into saying that he was 17. His mother quickly figured out that she couldn't stop him, but she also refused to lie for him. So I had to forge my own consent papers and I went to Norfolk, Virginia and signed up at 14. I had turned 14 years old then. And with that, the 5'8", 180-pound 14-year-old went off to Paris Island. He did well at boot camp, and again at heavy machine gun training at Camp Lejeune. Higher-ups wanted to keep Jack as an instructor while the rest of his unit headed west to fight. But Jack being Jack, 
He just hopped on the train with the rest of his buddies and was soon headed to Japan by way of California and Hawaii. And everything would have worked out just fine, except for a little hiccup involving a letter to a girl that was read by the censors. A girl wrote me a letter and said she was 15 years old. And of course I replied to her that I was just 15. I didn't think about the censor getting a hold of my letter and seeing I was 15 years old. So they let the outfit move on out to Raw and left me behind. I couldn't understand that. And after we were gone, the colonel called me and said, we know you're only 15 years old. We don't prepared to discharge you. I said, well, my mother doesn't complain about it. You put the training into me, and if you don't let me stay, I'll go back and join the Army and give them the benefit of the Marine Corps training. So the colonel let the 15-year-old stay, but this was not a 15-year-old who would be content doing desk work and driving supply trucks around Hawaii. So a lot of guys who get in trouble, they ship, ship them out to combat. So I went on a fighting binge. 17 straight liberties got locked up 17 times fighting. And it wasn't getting me anywhere. I said, man, I got to wise up and learn. I'm a slow learner, I guess. Troop ships full of combat Marines bound for the Pacific would stop in Hawaii to give the Marines one more round of fun before hitting the enemy-held beaches. So repeating his trick to leave North Carolina... Jack blended in with the crowd of Marines and made himself at home aboard the USS Duel, bound for Iwo Jima. I didn't have a bit of trouble to go into the child lines. I told everybody I was on guard duty, and all the guards signed guard duty could go in front of the child line and eat. So I, so I just, every day, every meal, I'd go in front of the child line. Never did have a wait. Well, I did this for 29 days, and finally they said, you better turn yourself in you'll be declared a deserter. So I didn't want my picture back in the post office and my mom would see it. So I turned myself in and the colonel says, boy, I'd love to have a boatload of fellows who want to fight as bad as you do. The next week, Jack celebrated his 17th birthday. And five days after that, the Marines enjoyed an early breakfast of steak, eggs, and bourbon and hit the beaches of Iwo Jima. That was one terrific place to try to get up off of. The beach was about a 45 degree angle, and it was like running in bing bags. We fought again across the island that, that afternoon and that day, and stopped on the other side near the neck, just below Mount Suribachi. We moved out the next day, and we really got hammered bad with mortar fire. A lot of our boys were really torn to pieces and they would fire like in checkerboard fashion uh, so that you couldn't calculate where the next attack mortar would be. In this hectic environment, Jack and his four-man fire team advanced through the Japanese trenches, clearing enemies from dug-in positions. Jack's team leader jumped into a neighboring trench to see what was there, but he hopped right back. He had landed on the back of a Japanese soldier which might have been easy to deal with, except that there were 10 other Japanese soldiers. And so began a messy firefight between four Marines and 11 Japanese. 
All these Japanese stood up in front of us and we opened fire. And we're too close to put it rifle to our shoulder. We, we uh, fired off hand. And we opened fire, I shot two. The second one I shot, of all things, my rifle jammed. But of course it was, it was just safe to happen. Because if I hadn't, I wouldn't, none of us would have seen the grenades. Looking down to clear his rifle, Jack spotted two enemy hand grenades. The Japanese Type 97 frag grenade was about a pound of metal wrapped around two ounces of explosives set off by a fuse that had a five second delay. So here is the $64,000 question. When were those grenades tossed into the trench? If they came in just a moment ago, then Jack could pick them up, return to sender, and kill some Japanese. But if they had been there for two, three, or even four seconds, then picking them up would let the grenades explode at the head level of the Marines. And as bad as it is to have two grenades by your feet, two grenades by your head, that's worse. With no more time to think, Jack jumped on one grenade and reached out to pull the other one to tuck it under his own body. Now fortunately, one grenade was a dud, but the other one wasn't. It blew me over my back and blew my arm away and around behind me. It did not knock me out, but it punctured my right lung. I had a couple of hundred holes in me. It was like anything from uh, a BB shot to a 22. I was bleeding profusely from the nose and mouth. And I tell you one thing, buddy. I said, God save me. I didn't call upon mama or anybody else. I said, God, please save me. The other three members of Jack's fire team killed the remaining Japanese and left Jack for dead. But what they didn't expect and couldn't see was that Jack was in fact alive. And in this mess of volcanic ash, dust, and shrapnel, Jack was twitching the fingers on his left hand, desperately trying to show somebody, anybody, that he was still alive. Another group of Marines spotted Jack, and they called for one of the unsung heroes of infantry combat, a Navy corpsman. And in the middle of patching Jack up, this corpsman had to take a little break to deal with an uninvited guest. And while he was kneeling there, he's facing towards this open hole at the end of the trench and shot another Jap that had come out to lobby another grenade on me. So, buddy, I really love corpsman. He saved my life. Thanks to the Herculean efforts of this corpsman, stretcher bearers, and many Marines, sailors, and doctors along the way, Jack Lucas survived after 22 surgeries. As Jack recovered stateside, his plans of meeting up with his girlfriend were rudely interrupted. President Truman decorates a group of 14 Marine and Navy men for heroism above and beyond the call of duty. 17-year-old Private Lucas, who enlisted at 14, threw himself on an exploding grenade to save his fellow men. Walked up and saluted. President said, I'd rather have this medal and be president of the United States. And I said, sir, I'll swap it. Marines have an odd sense of humor, and you would too if you've lived their lives. Remember how Jack was a stowaway and turned himself in to the colonel on the 8th of February? Well, it takes some time for word to travel from ship to shore. So on the 10th of February, Jack's 30th day of unauthorized absence, officials back on land demoted Jack to private and marked him as a deserter 
and desertion is a crime potentially punishable by death. So this is the story of a boy named Jacqueline, who forged his way into the Marines at 14, deserted his way into the most dangerous combat zone in the world at 16, and earned our nation's highest award for valor six days after his 17th birthday. <laughs> Could you imagine a better resume for a Marine legend and an American hero? That's Jack Lucas. Great job as always, Stan. And Jack Lucas's life story, he died on this day in history in 2008. This is Our American Stories. Once upon a time there was an engineer. Choo Choo Charlie was his name we hear. He had an engine and he sure had fun. He's good and plenty candy to make his train run. Charlie says, love my good and plenty. Charlie says, really rings the bell. Charlie says, this is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And you were listening to the uh, Good and Plenty theme song. That was my favorite snack. My parents would give it to me at the end of the week when I'd been a good boy. And I loved that song, and I loved the soft Good and Plenty. I hated the hard ones. I hated the old ones. I loved the fresh ones. And, well, today's piece is from Heidi Mitchell. And, by the way, we had a great segment with her on tickling last week. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and look up the tickling segment. It was fabulous. And, well, she had the burning question column, and last week she was on with us about that tickling. This week, her latest piece of art, Which Foods Make the Best Bedtime Snack? And uh, for me, it was always good and plenty. Uh, that's what I love to eat right before I went to bed. It's what I love to eat any time of the day, frankly. <laughs> Heidi, is this really a burning question? That's what we want to know. <laughs> well, my burning question is, is licorice genetically loved or disloved? Because mm. I don't, I can never eat those good and plenties. But yes, my my late night snack is ice cream, as I'm sure many Americans are. Oh, you still doing one. good and plenties? That's a good. Oh, I still. I, I yes, my wife. I have a stash all over the house. Any time is good. <laughs> Any time is good. It's just my. You know, Ronald Reagan, as you know, it was jelly beans all the time. He had them everywhere near him. So that was his favorite right. snack, not just bedtime. Some people just have that one thing. Uh, but uh, what now? What what led you to this column, Heidi? What was the what was what was on the mind when you wrote it? Well, I, like I said, I am I'm a late night snacker. I'm really good at starving myself all day, and then just I can't take it anymore, and I just go for cheese and chips <laughs> and and ice cream. So I wanted to know what was what was driving that. So I spoke to Dr. David Ernest, and what was super interesting about him. He's at Texas A&M Health Science Center, and he studies body clocks. But yeah. he had this great thought, which I never really thought of, which is that, you know, we're working these ridiculous hours, right? All of us are on this 24-hour day work schedule. And so we skip meals. Now, someone like me, I'm just trying to keep my weight in check, so I'm skipping meals. But then, you know, come the end of the day, we need a little bit of energy, and so what that snacking, he says that late night snacking isn't even really snacking. It's meal replacement for so many people. So I was curious about that. I thought that was really interesting. You know, in the piece you wrote, quote, but then after 11 p.m. or midnight, you're hungry, Dr. Ernest said. So what you're doing is not really snacking. You're replacing a normal meal with something quick and easy to consume. So this is the this is the post dinner dinner is basically what you're saying. Right. Exactly. And it, especially if your day is stretching on past, you know, 17 hours or so, you know, you kind of need that fourth meal, 
or you skipped a meal and so you're just super hungry. And so, you know, it is sort of it's either an extra meal because you got to get more energy or it's the meal you skipped because you were so busy during lunch that you didn't have it. You had and, and you're not going to cook a healthful meal late at night. Right. So you're yep. going to eat whatever is readily available. And marketing companies are very good at enticing us with packaging and delicious, good and plenty. And then there's always, of course, that you're not hungry at all and it's 1030 at night and you can't go to sleep and you want to catch up with your favorite AMC series. So you go downstairs and you open up the fridge and you get everything out of there and you just keep eating until you fall asleep, which is occasionally <laughs> oh, what is I do. Best. Isn't that the, the best? best? I can eat a whole pound of cheese. Standing up at the counter. Well, at we, we, we really cannot terrible. get together. I think uh, th- th- it wouldn't end well. We'd both be in a sugar coma <laughs> and the cops would have to haul us off in body bags. Heidi, so it sounds to me like you were wondering whether other people had this weird habit that you had. That's what it sounds like it was going on there. Yes, I think that was the impetus for this week. We'll I think see how so. next week goes. I think so too. So, yeah, why do- so what's interesting is that that, that craving for, you know, high protein, high fat food late at night, it's actually, it's it's fine to eat, you know, not great, but it's fine to eat that stuff during the day, but it's worse for you at night. So let's get to that though. That what's the time? I mean, we're now turning this from a fun thing into a health thing, which we hope we're not scaring the listeners, okay? Because we don't want to talk about health too often, um, and this isn't a health segment. But why does eating certain foods at certain times of the day produce different results? In other words, why should we be eating some things earlier and some things later, and why maybe we shouldn't eat anything later? Well, so you know, so if you're a night owl and you're trying to push through, you know, you want some high energy food and your body, your body will take it and, and it'll run with it. It really, your body, you know, it's on a clock, right? So, so it wants to wake up in the morning, be filled with like all kinds of yummy, heavy foods and push you through the day. But at night it wants to start winding down and we're wired that way for millennia, right? Or yep. hundreds of thousands of years. So, so then if you, if you eat that stuff late at night, well, then you're jolting your body back up to life, right? So you're, you're supposed to be winding down, but instead you're like, no, I'm going to eat that bag of delicious salt and vinegar chips. And now your body's like, oh, right, it's time to wake up. So then you're alert and your body, all the stuff goes into, your metabolism goes into action, all stuff happens internally. And, um, and it's just not good for your body clock. You're totally messing with yourself. Yep, yep. And by the way, it says here that maybe later at night you might want to think about eating things like cherries or bananas or pineapple, and I can only tell you this doesn't work for me because what I do is I get the, I get that two-pound bag of Bing Cherries and I wipe them out, and right. then I'm on a raging sugar high at like two in the morning. But, you know, moder- I guess moderation is the key to everything, Heidi. What's your broad takeaway from researching bedtime snacking? What's the relationship between how we eat and how we sleep? Well, you know, you, sh- you should stop eating you know, about eight o'clock. But what what I thought was super interesting was that what you eat like 12 hours before has an impact on what you're, what happens to you later on. So this, this doctor, I think this is pretty fun. He said, if you eat something high in omega threes, like salmon, for example, um, at say at lunch, eat that at lunch. And then at night you go for your mad men binge fest slash tub of Ben and Jerry's, you might be okay. You might be canceling out the bad fat protein stuff that's in all the ice cream. Right. 
and instead it's all going to be okay because we eat that salmon at lunch. Only well, if you indulge occasionally. <laughs> you can't live your life this way every day. Yep. Well, Heidi, we always appreciate what you write at the Wall Street Journal. And which foods make the best bedtime snack? This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to our website. Better still, go to the Wall Street Journal and catch the article. Thanks so much for joining us, Heidi. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after this. stories and you're listening to Alan Jackson singing the hymn softly and tenderly as he sings everything straight as an arrow and this is our final thought segment and this final thought segment comes from a student at Hillsdale College named Shiloh Carosa. I was up there in Michigan teaching for two weeks a group of young students about storytelling and I asked each of them A simple question. What are you going through? Tell me a story. We started putting different stories on the board. Shiloh was very quiet. After two classes, I sort of gave her some space. When everybody left, I approached her. And I said, what's up? What do you got? I haven't heard from you during the class. And She said, my my dad's dying. We found out he had cancer and he's not going to make it through the spring. I said, well, you're going through something. I said, why don't we write about it? Why don't you sit down and think about what you might want to do, what you might want to say to him? And so this is the story of Ken Carosa, a man who found himself locked in a battle with terminal brain cancer last spring. After raising a loving family in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Ken suddenly found his efforts redirected to a war he never planned to wage at the age of 58. Ken had spent the last 18 years homeschooling his two children, teaching part-time at Cornerstone University, and ministering in pulpits around Grand Rapids. More than anything, his life had been devoted to investing in other people's souls, striving to reach them and teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ and shower them with the same grace God had given him. In light of Ken's diagnosis, Shiloh decided to pass on his message while reminding her father of the powerful impact he had left on those around him, not least of all, his own family. Here's Shiloh. When my father was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer in 2015, my family knew our lives were going to look very different. 
No longer would my brother and I have our closest counselor there to help us navigate the rest of our college years and early adulthood. My father would soon find his remaining time riddled with medications, surgeries, and sympathy cards. He would be fortunate to reach two years, a number we all despised for its brevity. But my father viewed those two years as a precious window of time in which he could still invest in others, still spread God's mercy, and teach people to live life in such a way that they will be prepared when they lose it. In October of 2015, my father delivered a message to the men of Oak Hill Presbyterian Church titled, Preparing to Cross the Finish Line, which I will be quoting. As a man who spent his entire life devoted to discipling and exhorting others to pursue their Creator, he now found himself preaching the importance of being ready to meet their Creator. What follows is the message he wanted to leave the world with. A parting challenge for those willing to listen. And here are those words of Shiloh's dad. You cannot change the brevity of life. We have to all deal with that at one time or another. And we either get in touch with that or we don't. There's a way to deal with this. It's called preparation. What do you do to prepare for the day when you're told there's going to be a period after your sentence? You're going to be gone? I think what happens is, as Christians, we look at time and say, as long as I have it settled with Jesus, I'm okay. If anything happens, it's not if anything happens. It will happen. So what are you going to do to cultivate your preparation for the transition to the next life? Shiloh's dad continued, Six years ago, I lost two friends of mine in their 40s. It was just over with a heart attack, both times. I couldn't believe that I had talked to them one day and they were gone the next. Oftentimes we think, as long as I'm saved, whatever happens, happens. But it affects the way you conduct your affairs. You start to ask, how am I going to spend my time? There's some aspect of this that we've got to think constructively about. Now, I'm not saying to get used to it all because death is part of life. Death is not part of life. If death were part of life, we wouldn't have tears. We wouldn't have separations that cause depression for people and all the heartache that goes with it. No, death is unnatural because we no longer live in the perfect world that God made. It's fallen because of sin. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead so our sin could be forgiven, gives us that opportunity of eternal life again. So you can prepare for death, and you need to think about how you look at God. I learned that in spades. Is God being tough? Is he being hard? Is he doing this to be mean? Or is God really at something special? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying you can't see it, you can't hear it, you can't imagine it. But God has something even better where he is. But some of us are alienated from the idea that God is not going to shortchange us. My experience was that God took away the fear 
when I needed him to do that. I left Grand Rapids, going to the University of Michigan, hoping that I would have a good outcome from the surgery. But I also knew it was possible that I might not be coming back. Having your account settled is a really good thing. I'm not talking about wills and estates. I know I could talk about that, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to tell you that God gave me a little bit more time. My question for you is, do you have any idea how long you have? Are you going to get another five years, ten, six months? Maybe you won't be here tomorrow night. What are you doing to make sure that you're ready? Even in death, her dad was teaching and ministering to souls. Let's return back to Shiloh. My father loved people all his life and wanted them to know Christ personally. He provided my brother and me with a tangible example of living, resilient faith. He taught us to face life with the courage and confidence that God will carry us through any storm we face, even if it's the storm that ends our life. He taught us to live each day intentionally, to be ready, and to hold nothing back because we never know if we'll have tomorrow. As his daughter, I can say that he held nothing back in raising my brother and me. When he returned home from his first surgery, he opened up about his own feelings. He told me he was satisfied with the way he'd spent his life as a Christian. And knowing what he'd done, I could see why. He'd pastored a church. He'd taught at a Christian university. He'd spread the gospel through the radio and written publication. But when he sat across from me that day, he didn't mention any of those things. He looked me in the eye and said, You and your brother are my best investments. When I remember those words, I'm reminded of the years he spent homeschooling us. The evenings we went fishing in the lake. The times he took us camping, even though he never cared for life in a tent. The advice he was always so willing to dispense when we needed it. The late night conversations when we were too engrossed to look at the clock. All the nights he and my mom tucked us into bed. Looking ahead, we don't know how much time my father has left. Perhaps only a matter of months. No, he will probably not walk me down the aisle. No, he will not see his grandchildren. But compared to what he's done for us in the time he had, those things become pretty small. He gave us his parting message as a reminder to use the time we have. So I want to take this opportunity to remind him of the meaning he poured into my life. Thanks, Dad. And beautifully done, Shiloh. And Ken, her father. My goodness, what a thing all of us want our daughters to say. She said, as his daughter, I can say that he held nothing back in raising my brother and me. She also said, he looked me in the eye and said, you and your brother are my best investments. Beautiful. Life is short, and it seems too short when you share it with people you love. But Ken Carosa's life serves as testament to the power of God's grace and the importance of being ready. 
This is Our American Stories, and this story comes to us from Michael T. Powers, the owner of a video production company, a youth pastor, and the author of the book Heart Touchers, Life-Changing Stories of Faith, Love, and Laughter, which includes the following story. Every year, Michael's hired by an 8th grade class to capture their trip to Washington, D.C., and in the year 2000, their last stop was at the Marine Corps War Memorial, which is the largest bronze statue in the world and depicts one of the most famous photographs in history. It's of the five Marines and one Navy corpsman who raised the American flag at the top of Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima, Japan, during World War II. And here's Michael with what happened next. So over 100 students and a chaperones piled off the buses and headed towards the memorial. I noticed a solitary figure at the base of the statue, and, and as I got closer, he looked at me and he asked, So what's your name, and where are you guys from? I told him my name was Michael Powers and that we were from Clinton, Wisconsin. Hey, I am a cheesehead too. Come, gather around, cheeseheads, and I will tell you a story. James Bradley just happened to be in Washington, D.C. to speak at the memorial the following day. He was there that night, because he wanted to say goodnight to his dad, who had previously passed away, and whose image is part of the statue. He was just about to leave when he saw the buses pull up. I videotaped him as he spoke to us, and I received his permission to share what he said from my videotape. See, it's one thing to tour the incredible monuments filled with history in Washington, D.C., but it's quite another to get the kind of insight that we received that night. When we had all gathered around, he reverently began to speak. Here are his words from that night. My name is James Bradley, and I'm from Anago, Wisconsin. My dad is on that statue, and I just wrote a book called Flags of Our Fathers, which is number five on the New York Times bestseller list. It's the story of the six boys that you see behind me. Six boys raised that flag. The first guy putting the pole in the ground, his name is Harlan Block. See, Harlan was an all-state football player. He enlisted in the Marine Corps with all the senior members of his football team. They were off to play another type of game, a game called war. But it didn't turn out to be a game. Harlan, at the age of 21, died with his intestines in his hands. I don't say that to gross you out. I say that because there are people who stand in front of this statue and they talk about the glory of war. You guys need to know that most of the boys in Iwo Jima were 17, 18, and 19 years old. He pointed to the statue. You see this next guy? That's Rene Gagnon from New Hampshire. If you took his helmet off at the moment this photo was taken, and you looked in the webbing of that helmet, you would find a photograph. A photograph of his girlfriend. He put it there for protection. Because he was scared. He was 18 years old. Boys won the Battle of Iwo Jima. Boys, not old men. The next guy here, the third guy in this tableau, was Sergeant Mike Strank. Mike is my hero. In fact, he was the hero of all these guys. They called him the old man because he was so old. He was already 24. When Mike would motivate his boys in training camp, he didn't say, let's go kill the enemy or let's go die for our country. He knew he was talking 
to boys. Instead, he would say, you guys do what I say, and I will get you home to your mothers. The last guy on this side of the statue is Ira Hayes, a Pima Indian from Arizona. Ira Hayes walked off of Iwo Jima. He went into the White House with my dad. President Truman told him, son, you're a hero. He told reporters later, how can I feel like a hero when 250 of my buddies hit the island with me and only 27 of us walked off alive? So think about this. You, you take your class at school, maybe 250 of you, spending a year together, having fun, doing everything together. And then all 250 of you hit the beach, but only 27 of your classmates walk off alive. That was Ira Hayes. He had images of horror in his mind. Ira Hayes died dead drunk face down at the age of 32, 10 years after this picture was taken. The next guy, as we go around the statue, is Franklin Sowsley from Hilltop, Kentucky, a fun-loving hillbilly boy. His best friend, who's now 70 years old, he told me, yeah, you know, we took two cows up on the porch of the Hilltop General Store, and then we strung wire across the stairs so that those cows couldn't get down. And then we fed them Epsom salts. Man, those cows, they crapped all night. Yeah, he was a fun-loving hillbilly boy. But Franklin died on Iwo Jima at the age of 19. And when the telegram came to tell his mother that he was dead, it went to the Hilltop General Store. And a barefoot boy ran that telegram up to his mother's farm. And the neighbors, they could hear her scream all night and into that next morning and the neighbors lived a quarter of a mile away. The next guy, as we continue to go around the statue, is my dad, John Bradley from Anago, Wisconsin, where I was raised. My dad lived until 1994, but he would never give interviews. When Walter Cronkite's producers or the New York Times would call, we were trained as little kids to say, no, um, I'm sorry, sir, my dad's not here. He's in uh, Canada fishing. No, uh, no, there's no phone there, sir. No, no, we, we don't know when he's coming back. My dad never fished or even went to Canada. Usually he was sitting right there at the table eating his Campbell's soup. But we, we had to tell the press that he was out fishing. He didn't want to talk to the press. You see, my dad didn't see himself as a hero. Everyone thinks these guys are heroes because they're in a photo and a monument. My dad knew better. He was a medic. John Bradley from Wisconsin was a caregiver. In Iwo Jima, he probably held over 200 boys as they died. And when boys died in Iwo Jima, they writhed and they screamed in pain. When I was a little boy, my third grade teacher told me that my dad was a hero. When I went home and told my dad that, he looked at me and he said, I want you always to remember that the heroes of Iwo Jima are the guys who did not come back. Did not come back. So that's the story about six nice young boys. Three died on Iwo Jima and three came back as national heroes. Overall, 7,000 boys died on Iwo Jima in the worst battle in the history of the Marine Corps. My voice is giving out and so I will end here. Thank you all for your time. We were stunned. Suddenly, the monument wasn't just a big old piece of metal 
with a flag sticking out of the top. It came to life before our eyes with the heartfelt words of a son who did indeed have a father who was a hero. Maybe not a hero in his own eyes, but a hero nonetheless. And thank you for that reading, Michael. And boy, the class, what a lucky class to bump into James Bradley and hear that story. Bringing life to his statue, real life. James Bradley's book, Flags of Our Fathers, well, it became a fantastic hit for Clint Eastwood. By the same name, of course. Imagine those numbers. 250 boys hit the beaches. 27 survive. It's unimaginable. And we don't just bring you these stories on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. They come to you year-round because you need to hear them. We all need to hear them. This is Our American Stories, Michael Powers' story, James Bradley's story, and his father's. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Pipe down, Sling Blade. And you're listening to Commencement Music. And that means we're doing our commencement speech of the day. All month long, we're doing our favorite commencement speeches. From a while back, right up to the present. Mostly really great ones. But that Duke University commencement speech by that professor was so bad it was great. It was so awful, it was funny. And if you get a chance, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and look up that Duke commencement speech. As bad a speech as you could ever hear. Funny. Because he started attacking the audience for not laughing at his stupid (laughs) jokes. It's never a good place to be. And today we want to focus on a a pair of speeches uh, that Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, and the man behind the empire that Bloomberg is, a billionaire and a heck of a mayor, wherever you stand politically, he got that city to run and work. And the first commencement speech was at Harvard in 2014. And it's quite a speech. And, well, Bloomberg earned his MBA here. And I think people were expecting him to give this pep talk about what a wonderful place Harvard is given that he was giving the speech at Harvard. Let's take a listen. In the 2012 presidential race, according to Federal Election Commission data, 96% of all campaign contributions from Ivy League faculty and employees went to Barack Obama. 96%. There was was more disagreement among the old Soviet Politburo than there was among Ivy League donors. And that statistic should give us some pause. And I say that as someone who endorsed President Obama for re-election. Because let me tell you something. 
Neither party has a monopoly on truth or God on its side. When, when 96% of Ivy League donors prefer one candidate to another, you really have to wonder whether students are being exposed to the diversity of views that a great university should offer. Diversity of gender, ethnicity, and orientation is important, but a university cannot be great if its faculty is politically homogeneous. In fact, the whole purpose of in fact, the whole purpose of granting tenure to professors is to ensure that they feel free to conduct research on ideas that run afoul of university politics and societal norms. When tenure was created, it was mostly protected liberals whose ideas ran against conservative norms. Today, if tenure is going to continue, it must also protect conservatives whose ideas run up against liberal norms. Otherwise, university research and the professors who conduct it will lose credibility. Great universities must not become predictably partisan, and a liberal arts education must not, must not be an education in the art of liberalism. The role of universities is not to promote an ideology, it is to buy, provide scholars and students with a neutral forum for researching and debating our issues without tipping the scales in one direction or repressing unpopular views. Requiring scholars and commencement speakers, for that matter, to conform to certain political standards undermines the whole purpose of a university. Wow. Well, you know, it's interesting that Harvard's clapping, and I think that's a lot of the students. You know, your faculty may be leaning one way or another, but the students get it. I think a lot more students than we know get it. And it was interesting when, they, when he pointed out that 96% voted for one candidate. And by the way, whichever side, that's just a terrible number. There were people clapping. There were people actually clapping. It was embarrassing for, for them. I don't think they know. He, they don't think they knew he was, he was ridiculing them. Let's rejoin Bloomberg in this really remarkable commencement address at Harvard. Again, he got his MBA there. Now, I'm sure all of today's graduates have read John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. But just let me read a short passage from it. Quote, The particular evil of silencing the expression of an opinion is that it is robbing the human race, posterity as well as the existing generation, those who dissent from the opinion still more than those who hold it. He continued, if the opinion is right, they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. If wrong, they lose what is almost as great a benefit, the clear perception and livelier impression of youth, of truth produced by its collision with error. Now, Mill would have been horrified to learn of university students siling the opinions of others. He would have been even more horrified that faculty members were often part of the commencement censorship campaigns. For tenured professors to silence speakers whose views they disagree with is really the height of hypocrisy, especially when those protests happen in the Northeast, the bastion of self-professed liberal tolerance. And Bloomberg continues his tear on the illiberal tendencies at many American universities, including Harvard. 
this spring, this spring, it has been disturbing to see a number of college commencement speakers withdraw or have their invitations rescinded after protests from students and, to me, shockingly, from senior faculty and administrators who should know better. It happened at Brandeis, Haverford, Rutgers, and Smith. And last year it happened at Swarthmore and Johns Hopkins, I'm sorry to say. In each of these cases, liberals silenced a voice, and they denied an honorary degree to individuals that they deemed politically objectionable. This is an outrage, and we must not let it continue. If a university thinks twice before inviting a commencement speaker because of his or her politics, censorship and conformity, the mortal enemies of freedom, win out. And sadly, it's not just commencement season when speakers are censored. Last fall, when I was still in City Hall, our police commissioner was invited to deliver a lecture at another Ivy League institution but he was unable to do so because students shouted him down. Isn't the purpose of a university to stir stir discussion, not silence it? What were the students afraid of hearing? And why did administrators not step in to prevent the mob from silencing speech? And did anyone consider that it is morally and pedagogically wrong to deprive other students the chance to hear the speech? So well said. And here's how Bloomberg closed out this remarkable and I think courageous speech to his alma mater, Harvard University. Now, I know this has not been a traditional commencement speech. And in fact, it may keep me from passing a dissertation defense in the humanities department. (laughs) But there is no easy time to say hard things. Graduates throughout your lives, do not be afraid of saying what you believe is right no matter how unpopular it may be, especially when it comes to defending the rights of others. Stand up for the rights of others, and in some ways, it's even more important than standing up for your own rights. Because when people seek to repress freedom for some, and you may remain silent, you are complicit in that repression, and you may well become its victim. Do not be complicit. Do not follow the crowd. Speak up and fight back. You will take your lumps, I can assure you of that. You will lose some friends and make some enemies, I can assure you of that too. But the arc of history will be on your side, and our nation will be stronger for it. Great words of wisdom. And two years later, well, he was at the University of Michigan. And talking about a few things that weren't really even things just two years before when he made that speech at Harvard. And it shows just how rapidly campuses have ramped up their liberal tendencies. Here's Bloomberg. The fact that some university boards and administrations now bow to pressure groups and shield students from these ideas through safe spaces, code words, and trigger warnings is, in my view, a terrible mistake. The whole purpose of college is to learn how to deal with difficult situations, not to run away from them. A microaggression is exactly that, micro. But in a macro sense, 
one of the most dangerous places on a college campus is the so-called safe space because it creates a false impression that we can isolate ourselves from those who hold different views. We can't and we shouldn't try. Boy, they didn't like it. Some of the students didn't like what Michael Bloomberg was saying. But this idea idea of safe zones and microaggressions is crazy. And let's again rejoin Bloomberg for his concluding message to the University of Michigan graduates this year. Democracy is fragile and demagogues are always lurking. When Ben Franklin was leaving the Constitutional Convention, a woman approached him and asked, Well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? And Franklin replied, a republic, if you can keep it. Well, graduates, it is now your responsibility to keep it. And great words of wisdom, a great quote, and two terrific speeches. Google it. Put on Bloomberg and Harvard, Bloomberg and the University of Michigan. Share it with all of your friends. What's happening at campuses is just a bit crazy. Safe zones, microaggressions, not good for the kids, not good for the adults, not good for the country. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all of this.